is 70k a year enough to buy a home Welcome to the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast, where facts, logic, and reasoning are at the forefront of every conversation. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about is 70K a year enough to buy a home? We will go over some statistics on household income. We will talk about different loans that you can take out. What is the 2836 rule? How much does location play into buying and owning a home? And lastly, should you wait for interest rates to drop or save more money for a down payment? With my returning guest, Mr. Greg's take. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we delve deep into this issue. And welcome back to the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast. And as we did say in the intro, we are going to be talking about is 70K a year enough to buy a home? We're doing this episode because I've had a few people who are, you know, pretty much weekly listeners who have been asking for another episode on real estate. And they wanted us to go a little bit deeper than what we did on the other episode that we recorded. So I figured why not bring on my our, our household resident real estate expert, and that is Mr. Greg's take. Everyone give it up for Mr. Greg's take. Greg, how have you been? I'm good. Active. Thanks for having me back. Great, great, Greg. I'm going to start off really quick, and we're just going to go over some statistics on household income, and then we will jump right into it. And we'll talk about it. And here, here are some of the statistics on household income. The average household in 2021, the average household earned about $70,000 a year. And this information came from the Census Bureau. So it is pretty reliable. So we have 70 grand a year, basically 2021. Full-time workers, median income for women was 51000 And with men, it was 61000 uh, black households had the lowest median income of 48000 Maryland, the state of Maryland, had the highest median income per household at $97,000 a year. And the lowest was Mississippi at $46,000 a year. Now, I checked the rates about maybe a day or two ago from bankrate.com, and it says... The current mortgage rates for a 30-year fixed is 6.8%. So that's where we're at right now. That gives you, I want to give people a breakdown on household income. And we're going to, since we're going to be talking about location, that's why I put some of that state data in there. And my, my first question to you, Greg, is what are your thoughts on this household income? And I guess the first question I would want to ask you, is it even possible to buy a house in today's housing market on 70K a year, or is it just a pipe dream? Well, if we're talking about, you know, a regular person, a regular day job, or, or even self-employed person, not an investor who knows different things, interesting things, um, yeah, it's possible. It depends on where you want to live. Sure. So that's one of the things I did want to talk about is a lot of it is going to be location. But 
most people think that because the price of housing has went up so much and recently that when I say recently within the past few years, that it's almost becoming something that is unattainable. But your thought process on it is that's not necessarily true. Uh, can you just give a little bit more on that? Sure. Um, I'll just give you just off the top of my head. Most of us, the only way we think of buying a house is, you know, retail, go to the MLS, talk to a real estate agent, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're going to pay, you're going to pay top dollar. You're going to pay retail. We call those pretty shiny houses. There's a whole nother market of houses out there of normal people like Andrew and I, working people that, that are selling their house and they're not, they don't need retail or they can't get retail. And maybe it needs some work. And I'm not talking about remodeling the whole house. Craigslist is a great place to look for houses. You're going to find mom and pop people. You're going to find real estate agents. You're going to find pretty houses, but you're going to find everything in between yucky and low to the middle to the top. So if we learn to shop in more than one place, our horizon can be expanded in what's possible. Another thing I do want to talk about, Greg, which I do talk about on the show is that currently, you know, we, we have this thing where we bring it up pretty consistently and it's just talking about, the average household, you know, how many of how many people in the average household on a percentage basis can a, afford a $1,000 repair on a household item, meaning refrigerator, washer, dryer, one of the bulk type purchases. And last year, the number was at 57%. So 57% of the American households could not afford a $1,000 household payment on something unless they essentially charged it. Well, we do have good news on that front. The number has went down in 2023. That is the good news. The bad news is that it only went down to 56%. So what are your thoughts on that? Should that deter anyone from buying a house? I, I'll just say right off the top with me, it didn't deter me because I was in that 57% at that point when I bought my first house. And I still bought one. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the part about, you know, a high percentage of Americans not being able to afford a thousand dollar repair. It's a, it, that number is real. I, I just bought a house Friday for less than three thousand dollars. A couple did not have the money. They couldn't borrow it. They had no family. That's an extreme example. But if we can't afford a thousand dollar payment, um, I'm not saying don't buy a house. But I do know this. Um, we we talk a lot generally in this space about what can I buy and how much can I afford? We're not going to dive deep into this on this episode. I don't feel based on Andrew and I talking before we opened the mic, we need to look at what our bills are and where we're spending our money generally. Um, and maybe, maybe we just need to work on that a little bit before we do buy, but there are programs out there and FHA loan, you only need three and a half percent down and that can be gifted to you by someone in your family. Um, so yeah, there's there, USDA is another loan where you can literally get in for, I mean, I've seen people get their earnest money back and close. Sure. With and no that's, money uh, pocket. Yeah. Right. And, and we're segueing into that area. Cause I did want to talk about the different types of loans that you can take out. There are, you did touch on it. Uh, one, if you're a military veteran, you do have access to the VA loan and, and they're not perfect by any stretch of the means, but they are, they do allow you to get in. And I believe your first loan, you know, it's, you know, obviously you'll, you don't have to put any money down, but you, they don't put points on it. So it's, it's, there's no points attached to it, I believe. 
if you took out a second one, I think there's points on the second one. If you ever took out a second, a separate loan. However, that's one option if you were a military veteran. Another option is there is, like Greg just said, the FD, uh, FHA loans, which are for first-time home buyers. And I believe it's, what, 3%, Greg, or 3.5%, or yeah. is it something along those yeah, lines? Yeah, 3.5%. Uh-huh. 3.5% of the, the price of the home. And there's also the USDA loans, which he talked about, which are more for rural communities. But you can take out a USDA loan, and I believe those are also 0%. You don't have to put um, have any money down. And like Greg said, you can actually end up working out to where you actually can end up doing better after the closing than you did prior to the closing. And then, you know, there's, there's adjustable rate mortgages. Now, they are risky, you know, obviously, because you're, you're beholden to rates going up and down. But if you don't plan on living in the house for a long period of time, and if you can get the longer the adjustment is, it is an option, uh, but make sure that after that time period is up, if that rate goes up, you might be stuck holding the bag there. So that's something to take into consideration. But Greg, for, for you, what would you think, like with, with all those different loan types, you know, you, everyone is different, but is there one better than the other or one that you might use? Because you, you, you do real estate property all the time. So is there one that you find that is a little bit easier to use or more advantageous to you personally or no? It, it really, yeah, it really depends on the person, you know, what they're looking, what they're looking to do. Um, what I would say is just start with your current household expense. What's my rent payment? You know, am I living cheap because granny is my landlord and she's cutting me some slack and she's happy and I'm happy. We, we need to look at the reality of what the market will bear. So if you start looking around and you can find this stuff, you know, what is the median rent for anywhere USA? And you're going to find that on Zillow, for example, they give great statistics. So if you're paying 300 and you know, the median rent or the average rent is 900, you need to start talking to yourself. I need to start getting to the spot where I can pay actual market rent. So if we know what market rent is, and let's say we're paying it, we'll say, okay, can I go get a house for this payment that I'm currently making? A loan officer can help you help you find that out very quickly. Yes, they're going to pull your credit, but it's okay to go to a loan officer, be honest with them and say, look, I'm exploring this. It's okay if you pull my credit. Tell me how much house I can afford. And if they tell you you can afford this much house, it doesn't mean you need to buy that much house. That payment needs to make sense for you. Hopefully that helped. It absolutely did, because I did want to go into when you were just talking about what's affordable. I did want to talk about the 2836 rule which is what, and correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, when you were in the mortgage industry, was, is that how the, did the banks all utilize that rule or was it just some banks did it or how did that work out? Is it, you know, that 2836 rule? Um, I haven't heard it expressed that way, but the, the thinking is there. Anytime you go to a bank and get a loan, they have underwriting guidelines depending on the bank and depending on, you know, what the program of the loan is. But generally speaking, there's going to be, the biggest one is, the back end debt ratio or the debt to income ratio. So 45% is a number that's used pretty, pretty commonly. If you start getting into a government loan, that number can go up into the fifties. So you're getting some grace from the government, but you're also spending a lot of money, total house payment and all your other bills. So um, I am not a big fan of hundred percent financing. I'm really not. But if it's the only way you can get a loan to get in, and you have a plan to make some principal reduction payments to get that balance down, that's an okay thing. But again, it's a situational deal. Got it. And I 
bring that up because I just want to go over it really quick. It just basically says the 28 is the 28% of your income is basically on housing cost. And that number should not go more than 36 is what they say. That's basically what the rule is. And that includes other debts that you might have as well. However, like Greg said, I'm going to read it here in a second, but we're going to use the 70 K example here. And we're going to just simply say that there's a household that has 70 K and that basically breaks down to $5,833 per month. And if you are able to, if you're able to put down 20%, if you're able to put down 20%, your fixed rate mortgage of 7% means that you can afford a home that a home loan of $240,000. Now that's based on a home probably being about 300, you put down to 20%. Your mortgage loan, home loan would be 200 on $240,000. So that's basically what it's saying. It would equal to $1,633 a month is your payment. Now pertaining to the rule, which was Greg was talking about, they use a term called DTI, and it just says that it's a guideline, but it is not law. And many, some lenders, it says many lenders, but some lenders will allow you to go up to 45%, just like Greg was saying. Uh, it says FHA loans, the front end can go up to 31%, and the maximum can be as high as 50% on some loans. And USDA or some v, uh, VA loans, the ratio can get up to 41%. So that's basically what that is uh, saying with this 2836 rule. And it is just basically as sort of a guideline. One thing that I did was when I bought the house that we currently live in now, our goal was to try and make this a a situation where we were going to be able to do it on one income. And we were able to get it within that 2836 rule based at that time, just based on my income. And so it made the process and the transition a little bit easier for us to, to jump into the newer home at that time, combine it with the rates because it was smack dab in the middle of COVID, the rates were 3% and under. So it, it made for an easier transition for us. So Greg, you just mentioned that the, the 2836 rule is used by some banks and you mentioned that, it could go up as high as 45% in some situations. Did you, when you were in the industry, did you ever see that where the number peaked to that high or what was the highest maybe you've seen it? Uh, the highest back end debt ratio, which is all the minimum monthly payments, including the house payment that I've ever seen is up in the high fifties, like 55. But you got to realize that person may have had a bunch of liquid assets sitting in their bank account that they used to qualify. So, but generally you're not going to get a loan with a debt ratio that high. It's going to be more in that 45 range like you talked about. And that front end is going to be like you're talking about, which is just the payment because the bank does not want you going to what's called payment shock. Well, I'm paying 300 in rent for the last five years and now my payment's going to triple whatever that number is. I don't remember the exact number, but there's a percentage and payment shock is a consideration when they underwrite the loan. So and you're going to know what payment shock is. You they don't need to tell you what it is. You're going to go, whoa, there's no way you're going to know what that is. When, it, when it's like, ooh, you don't want to go to sleep after you get the keys going, 
if we have one bump in the road, we're not going to miss a payment. They don't want to put you in that loan because it's just not good business. And it's not good for you as the homeowner either. Absolutely. And that's one thing I did want to talk about pertaining to that is that we, we're in a situation to where you don't want to be in, in a situation where your house, as the term we've used before, has become house poor, meaning that you are you're, you're stuck to the house. You can't do anything else but <laughs> live in the house. And, you know, you, you're, you're, everything is tight. You can't you know, even do a little mini vacation. You can't do anything. You can't, you know, buy a car. If you need to get a car, you don't want to be in that situation because of the really, you know, the, the, the squeeze can be on and you don't want to feel, feel like that just to say you own a home. Greg, the next question I want to talk about with you, and you mentioned it earlier, is your thoughts on buying a foreclosed home. Now, I mentioned in the last episode we did on real estate that my first home was a foreclosure. It was only a two-bedroom home. And I did have to spend some money in order to move in. When I say I had to spend some money in order to move in, oh, this was over 20 years ago. So I'd probably say I spent anywhere between five and $10,000 to make the house livable to where I could move in. So that is some of the things you have to deal with on foreclosures. But Greg, you personally, what's your thoughts on foreclosures or buying foreclosed homes? Good, bad, and different? What's your thoughts? Yeah, it, it depends if you're an average consumer. And I don't say that in a demeaning way. I just mean a normal working person. And maybe you see something about buying a foreclosed home unless you have experience or you personally know someone who is doing it. I do not recommend getting into an auction situation. You could absolutely get buried. But if it's a thing where, okay, there's this property that's in foreclosure and maybe you're working with an agent because there are realtors that deal with these properties. The banks have to they have to move these properties. I know, I know a couple of agents that they deal with those and they're going to know, you know, and it's going to need work. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but the ones that are in the best shape are going to go quicker. And the ones that are in the least best shape are going to go slower. So, and again, you may not be able to get in there and take a look at the inside of that house. Some of these foreclosed houses, you don't get to go in and look at them. So you, you definitely need to know what you're doing. I don't care how pretty it looks on the inside. If I can't get on the inside, to at least look or send someone in there to take photos for me and give me an expert opinion. Um, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be uh, looking at a plan B and a plan C and, and maybe not, not picking it up for an average person. Um, yes, you can buy foreclosed properties. And by the way, this is a general statement. The amount of foreclosures is going to start climbing in America very, very soon. Okay. Um, can you just, uh, give a quick uh, analysis on to why you would think so uh, based upon what you just said that you think yeah. it might creep up a little bit, not nothing, nothing too sophisticated or just that some people just can't stand their loan or what, what is it? Yeah. And I'm not going to get into doom and gloom. Food prices are rising. Fuel is fairly stable, but in, in my space, we're getting, we're preparing for a wave of foreclosures. That's what I do full time right now. Um, I'm not swimming in them, but they are going to start to increase. But in the end, the bank wants to sell that house. They don't want to take it back. They want to work it out with you. But if they have to take it, they're going to simply turn around and resell it. So there's going to be bargains everywhere. Check them out. If you can get inside, get inside and take a look. I've seen somewhere there was literally, there was a wash and dry upstairs that started leaking and it went through the ceiling and there was a big giant hole in the ceiling downstairs. And I mean, it's stuff like that that you have to be prepared for and you have to get fixed. And it's all kind of things. That's why I say it's a good idea to be able to actually physically 
inspect that house before you even jump into it because you don't want to be in a situation where you're in a sort of quote unquote money pit. So just keep that in mind. Next, Eric, Greg, I do want to ask you, since you were in the mortgage industry for all those years, uh, did you notice or were you more concerned that, that, that customers were basically more concerned about the mortgage payment, the amount of the mortgage payment or the price per square foot? Because in our minds, we're always looking at what we can afford. How much can we ask? How much house can we get afford? And so we, we get that monthly number, that monthly payment number in our head, and we shop on that versus the price per square foot, which is really going to determine the actual deal and the value that you're getting on a home. What, what are your thoughts on that? I'd say generally speaking, let's say we're dealing with a real estate agent. They're going to know that number. They may mention that to you. They may not. Uh, typically, the bank is going to look at that. The underwriter is going to look at that. The appraiser is going to look at that, and the agent probably, but not the. the typically, the borrower is not concerned about the price per square foot. It's does the payment make sense? You know, do we like the neighborhood? Is it safe? You know, do we have yard? Do we is the kitchen? Those types of things. Yeah, I couldn't even tell you what my home currently goes for price per square foot. I'd have to actually do the math. Right. And, and the only reason I bring that up is that I just say if you're in the process of getting a new home, especially if you're building uh, from the ground up, you might want to know that number. Because I, I always I always tell people it's a good idea to take that into consideration when Definitely. you're you know getting ready to, to buy a home. Now, now, Greg, right now, the rates are higher than they've been in a while. So, like I said, according to bank rate as of a couple of days ago, they were around 6.8% on a 30-year fixed loan, which is what most Americans generally take out when they do buy homes. And when I look back at all the home loans that I've ever taken out, the highest I've ever paid was 6.3. And that, at the time, was on that foreclosed home. So that was the highest rate I've ever paid. Would it be in 6.8? Is that cutting down on the amount of buyers is the, is the rate basically pushing some people out of the market or, 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 or would you think that some people are just willing to pay to get the house that they want? They're willing to pay that rate. And not to say that this is an extremely high rate because maybe historically, this is what somewhere around the average or is it maybe slightly above average or what's, not a what do you rate. think? Not a bad rate at all. It's really not, but it's always relative. It's always relative. Yeah, when I say a bad rate, we we were kind. I, I'll use this word. We've been kind of spoiled, maybe over the past say, fifteen twenty years, on rates being in the, the where they've been at. You know, in the eighties, rates were twelve, thirteen, fourteen percent. You know, it just depends on when you know when and where you were in the market at the, those times. And I think what some people are a little concerned with, or were concerned with, was that the rate was it was went up but the price of the houses were also going up where you know back in the 80s the price of the houses weren't quite as high even though the rate was high so that might be scaring off some buyers so would you don't you wouldn't allow this 6.8 percent to deter someone from buying or would you say that it's or it's perfectly fine no i mean if you're looking to buy a house rates are what they are if we were in the early 1980s, it'd be 12%. It'd be 13. People were buying houses, but they weren't buying as much house as they did before rates went up to that extreme level. That's a high level. 
So whatever the rate is, don't let that deter you. Um, if, if you look at the house and you're thinking about buying, let's say it's a seven. If it's a seven, it's a seven. The question is, if you say, well, I want to be smart and wait until prices drop, that's okay. My question to you then is, what are you doing in the meantime while you're waiting for rates to drop? Are you saving your down payment? Are you cleaning up your credit? Are you getting rid of some debt you don't need? And so on and so on. That's a good point. And one thing I did want to talk about that is while you're waiting, if you're waiting for them to go down, now they could obviously go in the opposite direction, go up. But you made two really good points. One, you should be fixing your credit because you want to be able to get the lowest possible interest rate that you can get at the time that you take out a loan. So that's going to be very important. So if you do have some credit issues, you can clean them up. And some people, you know, you can get you can get your credit kind of in, in, in shape in about, a, you know, a year. They, you know, the biggest part of your credit score is paying your bills on time. That's literally one third of it. So if you can just do that, you know, that would be a, a, a big help right there just by doing that in and of itself. And the other thing is putting a little bit more money on that down payment. The more you can put on a down payment, the lower your payment obviously will be, but it will also maybe could even qualify you for certain loans. You know, there's, you know, PMI is going to be tacked on a loan if you don't have a certain amount down, unless you're in a really good loan to where it doesn't charge PMI. I guess there's some that might not. Uh, when I did buy my foreclosure, I did have to pay PMI because I didn't put any money down on the loan structure that I went in. But the house wasn't super expensive, so my PMI wasn't that high. But I've seen some people's PMIs go way up, and you have to be really careful. And that is, you know, that's money that isn't going towards the principal of the house or anything. That's that's just a fee. And what are your thoughts on that, Greg? Yeah, the, the premium mortgage insurance is driven by a couple of things. How much down payment you do or don't have, and your credit score factors in there too, by the way. So the worse the credit score, the less down payment, the higher the premium mortgage insurance. So think of it this way. The bank has the homeowner's insurance that you pay for that protects their collateral. And if they have premium mortgage insurance, that does not protect you. It protects the bank. So they have double insurance on this thing. So, yeah. That's that's what I want to say. The PMI is, is, is more for the bank because it's, it's protecting them if you can't pay it. So they, yep. they're getting something out of you while you're in the home. And for some reason, you're no longer able to make the mortgage payment. They got some extra income out of the deal. And that's pretty much the way it works. The last thing, Greg, I want to just talk about is let's just say I'm new to the housing market and I wanted to buy in this current, uh, this current housing market. And I want, before we go, I want you to share if you, if you want to, the, the, for, the foreclosure that you purchased and how that whole thing went down and, you know, the advantages that you will see in the future from it. Sure. Um, basically, what I do now is I market directly to pre-foreclosure homeowners. They've gotten behind on their payments. A piece of paper is filed by the bankruptcy attorney at the county courthouse by law. I check that list daily. I now mail daily, not weekly. And that's, that's helping. And I send out a letter introducing myself, a very simple letter with my phone number. I never hear from them unless they call me. So if they call me, that lets me know that they're motivated. Friday, um, I bought a house and the lady called me the very first time the homeowner two days prior to that. So for the first time in my career, I stopped the foreclosure, bought a house in two days. That is not normal. That is not even average. That's an extreme example. But with a plan, 
with some knowledge and with someone else coming in as my partner, we bought this house. We're in a 50-50 venture, meaning all the bills and any profit are split halfway down the middle into the future. Got it. So that's a really good deal. And like I said, foreclosures work out to your advantage if you can get the right price on them and everything lines up good. And this sounds like it's a, a really good deal for you. And, Andrew, you didn't ask me how much I paid for the house. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Tell, let the audience know what you paid for the house because that's 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 the important part right there, too. Go ahead. Okay. There's two two pieces to this. I won't get into the bank language because it's just gibberish. Out of pocket was $2,800 from my bank account to stop the foreclosure and another 600 in recording and transfer taxes at the county courthouse. So $3,200, $3,300 to actually take possession and ownership of the asset. What was the sale price on the contract? $38,800. That's the, what they owed on the house, basically, plus the little arrears that I had to catch up. Um, I won't get into the mechanics of it, but $38,800, the insurance company values the house at 207. Do the math. That is what we call a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was great. Congratulations to you on that. Thank you. I just wanted to say about that. If I was new to the housing market and wanted to buy in this current housing market, what would you say to me saying, Greg, I want to buy a house and these rates are a little off putting to me. I don't know what to do. What should I do? This is what I would do. I would talk to a family member or a friend who has their head screwed on seemingly well enough for you to feel confident asking them for their advice. Who did you use the last time you refinanced or bought a house? And if they have a loan officer or a broker that they like, that they trust, call that person and say, can you just tell me what I can afford? Do I even qualify? And if I don't qualify, tell me what I need to do to get my credit cleaned up. And I know loan officers that do that. And maybe they have to wait a year, like you said. But if you want that house bad enough, you need to clean up your credit anyway, because when your credit is so beat up, you can't get a home loan. It's affecting the price that you pay to buy cars, insurance, everything is affected by that. So yeah, that would be my first stop, loan officer. Got it. That's a good point. Well, Greg, we always can go on forever and ever, but we're going to stop right about this point. And I want to again say thank you for coming on and sharing your insight and your wisdom on this topic. We are, whenever there's real estate questions or anything that pops up, we're going to always call on Greg and see if he can help us out. The show, if you want to go to the Instagram page and see a clip of this particular video that we are recording, uh, it will be at the Instagram page, the 313 Men Money Marriage, all one word, and you'll see some clips there. There's a website with a link in the show notes. We've had a couple more email subscribers who are on the email list. That email list will provide you with a few extra goodies. One being with this YouTube channel getting ready to start up here in a little while, we got the, the basics foundations of it and I'm going to start releasing the videos for it. We just have to make some minor tweaks to the actual channel itself. Once that gets up and running, you will have access to lives and you will also have an opportunity to leave questions or even come on the live at that time because you will have access to the link in advance. So that would be some of the advantages of being on the email list. In addition to knowing what episode is going to be coming out prior to its release. So with that all being said, I want to continue saying thank you for the support by the audience that we are going to continue to deliver the content as best we can on a weekly basis. 
We are over, I think we're at 110, 112 episodes. I'd lose track after this point in time, but we've had that many posted up. And the good news about that is that we're sort of inching into the top 10%, meaning that most podcasts, only about 10% of podcasts get over that 100 episode mark and we've reached it. So we are, in, at least we're in the top 10 on something. <laughs> so I'll take that. It's a longevity top 10. So I'll take that. And like I said, we will be coming back next week with a different episode. There's going to be also some new guests coming on. The Men in Addiction series is going to still be going com- going on and coming on strong. We're going to be doing another episode on that probably in a week or two, maybe three weeks. And uh, we've been getting some really positive feedback on those as well. So until we meet again, we are out.